This morning we're going to be in John chapter 11. Now the last time we looked at the second half of John chapter 10 and speaking about Jesus as the good shepherd, the sheep hear his voice. And this morning in chapter 11, we're going to look at Jesus Christ as the resurrection and the life embodied in the miracle of Christ raising Lazarus from the dead. And we're going to cover half the chapter because it's such an awesome chapter, as they all are, and I don't want to rush through it. So we're going to cover the first half today. So starting with verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now this is the setting. We get a lot of information here, and I like to always give an overview so we understand what we're looking at. Uh, Lazarus, his name means God has helped, and as we'll see, God has certainly helped this man. And Bethany is about 1.8 miles from Jerusalem. It's east of Jerusalem. It's on the slope of the Mount, the Mount of Olives, and that's going to come into play later when Jesus starts coming towards the town. They could actually see him from a distance uh, with the disciples and his followers and his equipment. So Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sister, sisters, they've been mentioned a few times in Scripture. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 10, we see that Martha is doing a lot of serving and Mary's doing a lot of sitting at the Lord's feet, and there's an interesting dynamic there. Uh, in John chapter 12, we know that Mary anoints Jesus, uh, his feet, with her hair, and we'll talk about what that means and the significance of that. And he says, uh, he whom you love is sick, meaning Lazarus, to Jesus. Now, we often see Jesus as the good shepherd, you know, the sheep are scattered, and he, and he comes to corral them, and he ministers to people, and he does miracles, and he feeds thousands of people. But here is a personal application. The one Lord whom you love is sick. He needs your help. And I think that's the beauty of Christianity in that God can love us corporately. He loves this church. Everybody here is sitting here. He loves his church aggregately throughout the entire world. But he also loves you as an, indiv as an individual. Terry, Bill, Harold, individuals of God's love. So that's important that we understand. In some religions, the teaching is that it's kind of an aggregate thing and we can't look at God as our father. But the truth is that God is our father and he loves every one of us individually. Four, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now I need to digress for a moment of the nature of sickness and really trials. Sickness we can look at as a subset of trials, right? And, and let's go through this. Number one, sickness and death is the result of the fall of mankind. All right? Mankind's sinfulness, you know, is rebelliousness against God. And we can find this in Romans 5.12. When sin entered the world, death entered the world, and death, right, that sickness comes with that death element, and it didn't happen before the fall. The second one we can look at is chastening or discipline. Now that's found in Hebrews 12. There's the discipline of the Lord that comes through to us. And three, there's a refining of faith and character. And we see that in 1 Peter 1. Four, testing and sifting. In the book of Job, Job was tested, right? Peter was sifted. And five, here, this sickness was for what? 
was for the glory of God to be revealed. Now let's go through these. Number one, sin, sin entered the world, right? Death entered the world. Death through sin. We accept it. There's nothing we could do about it. If it wasn't Adam and Eve, we would have done it at some point, and we would have brought it into the world. So it's something we accept. Two, chastening or discipline. Who likes to be disciplined? I'm not going to raise my hand. Nobody wants to be disciplined. But the truth is, we put ourselves in that position. And the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens or he disciplines. Right? Three, refining of faith and character. Again, who likes to be in the furnace? Certainly not me. But Peter makes the analogy of gold that's refined in the fire. And each time it's heated up and the impurities are taken off and cooled down, eventually you have pure gold. And he likens that to us in our character and our faith. It's not fun, but it's good for us. Four, in the situation of testing or sifting, as in with Job, we don't like it. As a matter of fact, Job was a righteous man, but he questioned God. God eventually had to deal with him. You know, well, let's get this straight who you're talking to, Job. You know, I'm God and you're not. So he had to straighten him out on a few things. Again, this is something we dislike, but it's necessary for growth in our life. And five, for the glory of God. Sometimes we don't get it as Americans. You know, the whole idea of being tested as a believer, as going through trials, doesn't always jibe with the American dream. You know, and it's great. This country's freedoms, we're, we're able to worship here freely without the authorities coming in and telling us to break it up or burning the church down. That is an awesome thing. But at the same time, as believers, we're to go through these trials. It, it's a growth process in us. Now, there are some doctrines that uh, negate this. You know, the word faith doctrine is one of them, where we trade, we want God's sovereignty to be our sovereignty. We want to tell him what to do instead of letting him be master of our life. He's sovereign, and we trust him with his sovereignty and his control over our life. According to the scripture, if we're always feeling good and we're always happy and we're always wealthy, it'll turn us into immature and carnal believers. I want to read something from Warren Wearsby in his book, Be Alive. And he really makes a great point here. He said, God's love for his own is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. The fact that he loves us and we love him is no guarantee that we will be sheltered from the problems and pains of life. After all, the father loves his son, and yet the father permitted his beloved son to drink the cup of sorrow and experience the shame and pain of the cross. We must never think that love and suffering are incompatible. Certainly they unite in Jesus Christ. Jesus could have prevented Lazarus' sickness or even healed it from him from where he was remotely, but he chose not to. He saw in this sickness an opportunity to glorify the Father. It is not important that we Christians are comfortable, but it is important that we glorify God in all that we do. Well said. Now, some will in, uh, attribute some of these things to the devil. However, it's very clear in Scripture that sometimes it comes from God and sometimes it just at the very least he allows it in our lives. Isaiah 30, 20, the Lord gave Israel, he said, the bread of affliction or the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, right? To, to teach them and to train them because they were going on the wrong path. That came from the Lord. So now that we got that straight, we look at this. Jesus said that Lazarus' sickness is not unto death. Well, that's astounding because as he spoke, Lazarus was sick. 
or as the messenger came, Lazarus was dying. Now let's, let's look at this. Remember, Jesus retreated to Bethabara, and we saw that in the last chapter, which is by the Jordan. And to go from Bethany to the Jordan area was about roughly 10 miles, maybe a little more. And, you know, you didn't have little motorcycles or, you know, the train, the bus. So you had to do it by foot or by a beast of burden. Now, that would have been basically a day's journey to go to where Jesus was for this messenger to say, the one whom you love is sick. Mary and Martha came to tell for me to tell you that. What did Jesus do? We find that he stays two more days and then he makes the journey himself. So what do you have altogether? You have four days. As a matter of fact, when Jesus comes to Lazarus, what does he find? That Lazarus was in the tomb for four days. Now, I'm sorry to give you mathematics equations on a Sunday morning, but it's important that we look at this. You start doing the math and you see that as Jesus comes to the tomb, it was a four-day issue, which maybe Lazarus was just about to die as the messenger was going to see Jesus. So we can, we can look at that. Now, how is this sickness not unto death when Lazarus is dead? Does it make sense? Well, because this sickness unto death does not have the last word in Lazarus' life and with this particular illness. Now, certainly even death for the believer is not the same as death for the non-believer. And we'll go into that. Verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Does this make any sense? Jesus loved them so he purposely stayed two more days while this man was suffering, while those sisters were grieving. Is that incongruous with his nature? Is it inconsistent with a, with a loving God? Well, let's check this out. Our suffering, as Wearsby stated, does not mean that God doesn't love us, that God has forgotten us, and that God doesn't care. We tend to do that as human beings because we're sentient. We have feelings. And when we're really suffering through something and we cry out to God and it's not lifted right away, we wrongly, and I've been there, assume that God has forgotten about us, but that's not true. I'll tell you this, that by my house, about a half a mile down the road is... Um, a road, another road that really goes to nowhere. It goes to a, a cul-de-sac and there's some houses on that road. And next to the road, it's really neat. Parallel to it is this beautiful stream with trees overhead. And I've often gone down there to pray and to just talk to the Lord and to, you know, just me and him. And a car goes by maybe once every half hour. So at different times in my life, I'll go there and it was a while before I was there. And there was a point in my life where I went. My wife could see me taking the walk. And I came back. And as a loving wife, she asked me, are you okay? And I said to her, and I've gotten to the point in my life where I said to her, Heather, God has me right where he wants me. As a matter of fact, when I go there, and I didn't hear an audible voice, but in my heart, it's almost as if God says, it's been a while since we met here. So it's a very intimate place where he and I can, and of course I pray in between then, but there was something about that area that when I'm really driven to the point where I'm on my knees, I go to that area. Now I'm not going to tell you where it is <laughs> because I don't need to get there and there's a hundred people and I'm waiting online, you know, <laughs> that's my special place. <laughs> Suffering will always shape our character and that's a fact and that's biblical. Now, Lazarus 
and his sisters may have felt abandoned by God. And some of you this morning may be feeling that very same thing. There's an issue that you just can't shake. There's an issue with your children. There's an issue with relationships in your life, and you're really struggling. There's an issue where you think there's no way out of it. And there's pain behind the, the, the eyes that I'm looking at this morning, and I don't know, but God does. And I assure you, just as this family, don't be discouraged. Let this portion of Scripture minister to you. God's ways are not our ways. As a matter of fact, at this juncture, they couldn't see what God was going to do. They couldn't see the glory of what he was going to perform. And God sometimes will allow us to be a party of an impossible situation that it's only in hindsight that we understand that we're, what he's doing. I call that the, oh, now I get it factor. You, know? you look back a few months, a few years, and you're like, wow, God, you're good. That's all you can say. I'm in awe. You know? Seven. Then after this, he and the disciples... He said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I want to point out a little bit of a sub-theme throughout this. And again, in verse 8, the disciples say, Rabbi, lately... The Jews, meaning the Jewish leadership, sought to stone you, and are you going there again? From the disciples, and we'll see later to the sisters, there's people questioning the Lord's judgment. Can you believe that? And I submit to you, 2,000 years later, we do the same thing. Oh, I would never, Pastor Joe. Yes, we do. We see something unfolding, and we, even in our prayers, you know, and God loves us, we're, we're his children. But we even pray, Lord, don't you see... When, you know, can't you? And when we start to throw all these things out, we question his judgment. But we'll see that through this, this text. Even, God, how about that's a great plan, but can I, can I tweak it a little bit? Can I move this over here? Can we do this first and I get that? And then later we, you know, can you just push that off until later? We do that. We try to tweak his plan. And he's got the best plan. So now he gives this analogy of working during the daylight. Now I have to set the stage in that culture they didn't have high-powered halogen lights. They didn't have street lights. So whether you're going to walk or you were going to work, you did it during the day. At night, you know, you can't see where you're going. Maybe you can use the stars. It could be thieves, bandits. So there's a lot of issues with doing things at night. So we would do it back then during the day. Of course, Jesus makes a spiritual application out of it. The first one, as the S-U-N, the sun, lights up the day, it permits activity. Here's the analogy. As the S-O-N lights up the world while he is in it, it permits spiritual activity. As the light of the world, Jesus wasn't sent to kick back, to engage in self-preservation. He left his security so that we could benefit. 2,000 years later, Christians, brothers and sisters, we're also not to be self-preservationists. We're also not to rest on our laurels or be self-comforters either. We are in the dispensation of grace. The Lord is still working here. And we also have work to do. Christ calls us to be the light of the world. What are we doing with our free time? Now, I had a college student send me an email 
and she's dealing with this gentleman who's either an atheist or he's somehow antagonistic to God. And she figures, well, let me email the pastor and he'll give me a good, you know, something to really set this guy, some great nugget that he's going to send me. It was a long email, but it wasn't what she had expected. I actually said, and I said, I'm not afraid to say that in many respects, the church body of believers have failed in Western culture. Wow, that's an answer I didn't expect. As a matter of fact, when I talk to these types of people, whether they're atheists or they're antagonists or whatever the case may be, we actually find each other agreeing about a lot of things. Jesus said in Matthew 25, for whatever you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. And if you haven't done it, when you had the opportunity, you, per- you haven't done it for me. Right? So the question is, as believers, as Western Christians, what are we doing with our free time? Do we completely covet our free time? Do we live a hedonistic lifestyle? You know, a life devoted to pleasure. Now, I've talked about the younger generation. Now I'm going to talk about the older generation. You see some of these commercials for retirement communities and everybody's playing golf every day and they're swimming every day and, and that's very attractive. It's a great marketing tool. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on television. If it doesn't work, it's not going to be there. I mean, and if you've worked hard all your life, do you deserve to relax? Absolutely. But is our lifestyle completely devoted to hedonism? The Bible says, let the older women teach the younger women. You know, the older men should be teaching the younger men. What are you doing with your free time? So when the question was asked of me via email, I said, I think that the church has largely dropped the ball because Jesus asks us to be his arm. Remember, we talked about Psalm 82. I said, you are gods, you are magistrates, you are judges, you are leaders to strengthen the poor, to strengthen the widows, to help them out. And God condemns the leaders because they didn't do that. What are we as Christians doing? You know, the Trenton homeless just went out. Do we support it? Do we volunteer for anything? Do we serve it all? Well, my spouse does that. Well, that's not good enough. What are you doing? You know? And I said to her, tell them all the great things your church is doing. Do you support your church? Do you support your church financially? Do you support missions? These are questions we have to ask because we need to be working. And I'm going to tell this. I get more excited. I get more uh, a sense of urgency when I look out at the Middle East and I see what's going on and I see Israel visibly nervous. They, we're, their, their attitude is we're being surrounded by people who hate us. And they're, they're trading missiles. And they're trading. How many missiles have, have sent, uh, been sent over to Israel from Hezbollah? That's where it's all going to happen. That's the powder keg. And there's sparks all over the place. And it isn't some stupid movie. It's, it's sparks that are, is ushering us into end times. But what are we as believers doing? We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves those hard questions. Hard questions. If a man walks during the night, he stumbles because there's no light in him. So here's this kind of twofold analogy. Jesus is the light of the world. Right? He brings the light to the world. But at the same time, Jesus also said to his believers, you are the light of the world. You need to represent me. You need to be my ambassadors. Go out there and tell them about me. Go out there and tell them I love them. I want to bring them into the kingdom. So you see this twofold analogy here. But what it also shows is apart from the Lord and the Holy Spirit, we don't have any light in us. We're devoid of spiritual light. Right? Verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Then the disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. (laughs) I love the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples. 13, however, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. In Italian, we would say malatesta, you know, dense. But I, I could see that if I was walking with him, I probably would be dense too, you know. Lazarus sleeps. This is a euphemism to help people understand death. And the Apostle Paul used it as well. What was really happening was Lazarus, where was he? Well, he was in the tomb. No, that really wasn't Lazarus. You know, when I officiated funerals, I, I often say, point to the casket. That's not our beloved departed brother or sister. That is the vehicle that God used for them to negotiate the temporal realm. God will also give us a vehicle, a body, to negotiate the spiritual realm. 1 Corinthians 15 wasn't written yet. There is a glory of the terrestrial. Our bodies are amazing machines, but they die. You know, the moment we're born, we're going into the death process. It's kind of weird. However, 1 Corinthians 15 says there's also a glory of the celestial. Wow, we're going to get new bodies. They're going to be able to do amazing things. They won't be confined to gravity. They won't be confined to the earth. Uh, The Bible speaks about the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. The Bible speaks about all these amazing things that are going to happen in that later dispensation. Fascinating stuff. So, as God, he could see the big picture. Now, next Sunday, I'm going to save this for next Sunday, we're going to go through what happens to a person when they die. What does the Bible say? Where do they go? Right? What happens to the body? You know, what are they doing at this point? What is it? Where's our loved ones? And we'll talk about that. Remember, 2 Corinthians 5 5 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You know? Split second. No, you know, fraction of a second. It's immediately a transition there. Now, this seems like a mild rebuke from Jesus to the disciples. I like that. Look, he's dead. (laughs) And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there to heal him because I'm going to show you something that's really going to blow your mind. And it's going to take you to that next level, believers. It's going to take you to that next level in understanding and in faith. In a temporal mind, they, especially they, only understood death is mysterious and final. However, as God, he's going to show them that he just steps into a, a, a different dimension. The response from the disciples is, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. Again, another instance of a person saying to the Lord, you need to rethink this. So he's sick, so he's sleeping, so he's ill. He'll get better. Guys, you don't understand what what you're saying that. Verse 15. He says, again, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Now, didn't they already believe? To a certain extent to a certain extent, but not to this magnitude. It was growing. Remember, this is a four-day-old decomposing body that Jesus is going to resurrect. Jairus' daughter, he did it instantly. Um, you know, in other illnesses that led to death, he did it pretty instantly. Wow. You know, maybe you could say, maybe it really wasn't a resurrection. Maybe a, a scoffer could make something up. Well, I, I, I can't, and I'm going to go into the, the, the theories that the people had back then and why he waited four days. Verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I think more of an emotional response because the truth is 
that when Jesus was, uh, was arrested, uh, the disciples scattered. They got scared. Even Peter followed at a distance. And according to the gospel accounts, it appears that maybe the only one who might have been there was John, the disciple John. The rest of them got scared. So Thomas wasn't there. However, I love the humanity in Thomas because it shows that there's hope for us. We do that too. Don't we say things out of emotion? We get moved by something and we don't follow through. Right? They did the same thing. 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb, Lazarus, for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women and, uh, around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now here is the, here is the understanding of a teaching back then. It was taught because they didn't have the science that we had today. They didn't have uh, the greater understanding that we do. They certainly didn't have, on a spiritual end, the revelation in the New Testament to guide them either. So even some of the rabbinical teachings were that the body, if you died for three days, the spirit would hover over. And there was an ability, if you could resuscitate that person, I don't know if they had a form of CPR back then, but within those three days, the spirit could re-enter the body and the person could, could be alive again. What Jesus was doing was he was making sure he's going to do it on the fourth day. Why? Because even that silly teaching, it's, that's going to be thrown out the window. Now, if you have been in the medical field and you understand the biological processes, the entomological processes of the insects and what they do, uh, by four days, even his sister Martha said, if you roll the stone around and you open it up, it's going to be a stench in there. This is her own brother she's speaking about. Because they understood the processes, the gases that are given off, it's done. It just, the body starts to decay and rot. So Jesus, this resurrection was significant. Verse 20. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Again, this Bethany is, is on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So as the, as the Lord is coming, they can recognize, they can see it from quite a distance. So she goes out to meet the Lord, and she speaks to him. Now we can surmise through the scripture and everything that we know that Martha, compared to Mary, maybe she was a little type A. You know, she was a go-getter. She was a worker. She, was, she could be forward. She knew how to get what she wanted. And Mary was more gentle, more meek. So you can see that the sisters were a little bit of opposites here. So Martha comes out. Maybe she was a little annoyed at the Lord. If you had been here, he wouldn't have died. The third time somebody suggests that the Lord could have or should have done something different. In other words, Lord, you could have prevented this if you would have acted sooner. Certainly she know. She knew that from where he was, he even could have done it remotely because he'd done it before. And I look at this as when God isn't on time. Better yet, let's be honest, when God isn't on our timetable, because he should be, right? I'm a child of God. He needs to be on my timetable. We've all been there. And today, you may feel like you're starting to run out of time. You may feel it's been years that I'm dealing with this situation. I've been praying every day, every morning, and every evening, and it's just not working out. Lord, where are you? 
I see my other Christian friends, look, they're getting blessed. Look at their lives. Look at the things that are going on with their children. You know, what about me? Where are you? I would ask this morning that you would let the word minister to you. Because these people were real like us. They had the same feelings, the same emotions. And Jesus was in the flesh with them. And they still got discouraged. They were still dejected. But Jesus says, even when Thomas puts his fingers in his wounds after the resurrection, he goes, well, that's great that you believe, but blessed are those that have not seen and still have believed. That's everybody here. Anybody see Jesus in the flesh with the holes in his wrists? But you believe. The Holy Spirit worked in your life. That's why you're sitting here and not golfing or doing something else, right? So I don't want to pick on the golfers. I mean, I I play mini golf with my son, and it's a lot of fun, but... Uh, but you know what I'm trying to say. Uh, Martha, though, she was still hopeful. She says, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. She catches herself. That but, right? It's a, a disassociative connection or something like that. But if you were here, you could have, my brother would have been better. But I know that even now, Lord, whatever you ask, It's going to be given to you. Maybe she's suggesting the impossible. Lord, do the impossible. I really miss my brother. 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I could picture Martha saying, or thinking, I'm not happy with the situation, but I'm following you, or I'm trying to follow you with the whole resurrection idea. I understand that my brother will rise again. What did Martha know of the resurrection? Probably the Old Testament, right? First Corinthians wasn't written yet. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 and 13. Some will, they'll be in the dust of the earth and they'll awake, they'll arise to everlasting life and others to, to everlasting contempt. So even the Jewish people, the Old Testament, they believed in the resurrection. So when you talk to your Jewish friend, you point that out to them. Say, it's right here in your Old Testament. You guys believe this because God had already given us some type of understanding of it back in the Old Testament. But Jesus said, almost to say to her, focus, Martha, look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. It's not just words on a scroll. Look at me, Mary, Martha. Look at me. I am the resurrection and the life. I embody this concept. Watch, trust, you'll see. Now, I just want to digress for a moment because as far as resurrection goes, Jesus in various forms embodies or has some association to the resurrection. Now, to us, you know, every Easter, Resurrection Sunday, we hear about it. You know, we read it in the Bible. I hate to say it, but to us, sometimes it becomes common. It shouldn't. It should never. However, to them, this was a new concept. So try to put yourself in their shoes. A few things. Number one, the first thing, Jesus resurrecting Lazarus. Albeit temporary, it was a type of the resurrection to come. So that's John 11. Two, Christ's own resurrection. We read this in John 10. Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down willingly. Wait a minute. The Romans beat him. They tied him to the cross. Yeah, but he didn't have to submit to that. He was the son of God. 
He laid his life down willingly, and he said, I have the ability, the ability to take it up again. He was part and parcel to his own resurrection. Three, the resurrected saints that appeared to the living in Matthew 27. Right? While this whole thing with his death, burial, and resurrection was going on, saints actually came out of the graves in Matthew 27 and appeared to many. Four, it's amazing how much is in here. Four, bringing the saints out of paradise, out of Abraham's bosom, you know, Luke 16, where the good people went in one compartment and the wicked went in another. That was prior to Christ dying. When he died for their sins, Ephesians 4 tells us he first descended and he, led them, he took them out and he let them be in the presence of God because his completion of the sacrifice for their sins, it was done. It was finished. Five, the harpazo or the rapture of the living saints in our near future. We don't know how near. God doesn't give us a timetable. First uh, Thessalonians 4. And six, the resurrection of those under God's judgment. That's the saddest thing that you'll ever read in Revelation 20. Those that bucked him and refused and rebelled against him and didn't want his salvation. They lived for themselves. They will be resurrected. Even the Bible says that the sea will give up the dead. The dead will all be given up and they'll stand before the Lord on the great white throne judgment and they'll be damned. They'll be judged. Nobody has to go there though. Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Why? Because he is eternal. Right? He wanted her to understand this. Again, picture you as Martha. I love my brother. My brother believed. And I know that I know that I know on the other side of that stone, in that tomb, he's decomposing. So how do I reconcile Jesus when you say he will never die? Again, she needs to understand where he was, and we're going to cover that on next Sunday. I hate to do that to you, but I really want to go into it next Sunday. 28. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there's a similarity with the sisters and what they say. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who were standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Lose him 
and let him go. I don't think anybody was whistling at the time that that happened, but... <laughs> We're going to pick this up in more detail next Sunday, but Jesus referred to himself as the bread of life. He referred to himself as the one who provides living water, the light of the world, the good shepherd, equal to the Father in nature, and now the resurrection and the life. The resurrection of Lazarus was the height of what his followers could absorb prior to Christ's crucifixion and his own resurrection. Now remember, we're reading pages on a Bible, and it's inspiring, but they actually were there. <laughs> imagine that. They saw it. And you could imagine that as human beings, they would walk with Jesus, and he would calm the seas, and he would feed 5,000, he would raise people from the dead. I bet they slept really good at night because it probably was sensory overload. He was giving them as much as they could handle. And as time went on, he, he developed them, he built them, he grew them. And each new thing that happened, they were able to deal with it because he had slowly growing, grow, grew them in that process. Imagine Daniel in the book of Daniel, right? And in Revelation, the revelator, John, the, the apostle, both of those men had fallen down from sensory overload, I believe, the visions that they saw, the things were so amazing that as human beings, they couldn't handle it. And they had to be refreshed oftentimes. So, so keep that in mind as we read this. The second thing we looked at is that Jesus resurrected Lazarus and later himself. And what he showed the world through this, that he had beaten death. Look at this guy. Four days in the, in the grave, four days in the tomb. Psh, where's the smell? Where's the decomposition? Look at him. He looks like everybody else. Take those grave clothes off of him so the guy could walk, you know, looking like the mummy walking around with those, those things around him. Take, you know, give, give him freedom. Let the guy come back over here. He reversed the curse of sin. Only Christ could do that. Right? Remember, Jesus gave his life on the cross. He said, he, it is finished. At some point on that, and they marveled, well, he's dead so soon. Because at some point after he died for our sins, he gave up his spirit. He was killed in the flesh, but the part of him that's God, you can't kill God. He rose again in a glorified form. That's a little bit of a brain twister. He died, but his humanity died, but he is God. You can't kill God. Now, here's the irony that, and let's just bring this to modern day, and I'm going to make one more point, and we'll close, is when you read the news for the last two weeks, you see of the rioting, you see of the bloodshed, in the Middle East, in the Arabian Peninsula, because somebody offended their God. What's funny is that for the last few days, I've, I read, there's an article right next to that, and it said, could Jesus had a wife? You guys read that? Right? Don't fret about it. You got to understand these scrolls. There's a provenance issue. In other words, they have to prove the origin and the source. A lot of these counterfeits are traded, and they make money off of them. And if they could get things going, there's a financial uh, issue to that to, to be had. So they're still vetting it out, but um, it's a long story with the Gnostic Gospels and some of the Coptic texts, and I don't want to go through it all now. But the point is that it doesn't jive with the rest of the scripture. Women were the Lord's daughters. He's not going to marry anybody. He didn't come for that. He came to show us the way. He came to give us life. And his seed is not through something physical. It's through us spiritually. He died and and his blood is, is what gives us life. It's our seed. 
right? So it's a spiritual issue. But you know what? I don't have to get upset about it. They can put stuff all day long. They can make fun of Christians. You know, real, true Christians, they're not going to riot. We're not going to do crazy stuff. Because I know how big my God is. If you mock the Lord, I pity you. I feel for you. And I want you to be saved. You know, I, I sometimes debate people. Well, not really debate, um, but they, I smile. And they, they, they're trying to get my goat, and I just won't let them. I'm like, he loves you. The fact that he's not striking you down right now is a fact to his love and grace. So I don't have to get upset. You could say anything you want about my God. Right? Dagon, his, you know, the Philistines, their God fell down. At the statue and, and part of his body, his hands fell off. And they had to take their, their stone God and put him back on his pedestal. If I got to help my God back on the pedestal, he's not worth worshiping. So this is awesome, this resurrection. If it wasn't for this, how many people would really believe? But he knew that this was something that he had to do with Lazarus and with himself. Third point. Lazarus, his physical resurrection, is a type of spiritual regeneration. We are flesh and bone, and we are alive, especially when we get an adrenaline rush. It's a sense of well-being. It's exciting. Adrenaline. There's adrenaline junkies. You know, playing a sport or doing something that really moves you and motivates you. But we are dead men and women walking until the Lord calls us forth. We're born physically, but we need to be born again of the Spirit. Otherwise, we're dead. The flesh comes and the flesh goes. It isn't until we have a rebirth, a new nature, until we are truly alive. So that's exciting. The Lord calls us how? He called Lazarus with a voice. How does he call us? Through his word through an evangelist, through a vision. And this morning, he may be calling you through his word. In Iran, Christianity is illegal. You see all the stuff. Yes, that one pastor was released, but there's many that are still in prison. So what does God do? You won't let me in? No problem. I'll send visions. So they live in a country where if they become and convert from Islam, they could be killed. These visions are real because they're converting. And they're putting their lives and their families' lives in great danger. Okay? Keep that in mind. Similar to Lazarus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins prior to spiritual rebirth. We're dead. We're rotting in that tomb in a spiritual sense. Let me ask you a question. Are you content to be in the world? Are you content to take what the world has to offer and be dead men and women walking? Or will you respond to his call? Remember, he commanded him. He said, Lazarus, come forth. He didn't say, abracadabra, here's Lazarus. He called Lazarus, and Lazarus had to respond to his voice. He was one of his sheep. Somebody said that if Jesus didn't say Lazarus by name, they all would have come out. Think about that one. He had to call Lazarus by name. Interesting conjecture. This morning, if you're a believer, is there something in your life that you feel is dead and you need to have it resurrected? If you're not a believer, be resurrected unto the new birth, unto the new life. If you are a believer and you're struggling with something, maybe even your walk, do you want God to call you forth and resurrect your life? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this amazing portion of scripture, Lord. Uh, There's a few resurrections that are recorded in the Bible. But this one is is astounding. This one is he went to some